You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. I was preparing this week and the song, The Amazing Grace, just just reminded me uh, as I was preparing this week, you know, this text and the message of this text wouldn't be preached in many, in many pulpits today. I, you know, the, the pendulum has swung. There, there was a time not that long ago when the, the pendulum was way over here and, and preachers emphasized sin and repentance so much that grace was nowhere to be found. But, but now the, the pendulum has swung in, in the opposite extreme and now in many pulpits today there's never any mention of sin or repentance and so we we always want to walk a a, a line somewhere down the middle because the truth is usually somewhere in the middle there needs to be a good balance between uh preaching of sin and repentance and grace as well so in any case this this message of john John the baptist would not be welcomed into many of our churches today he just wouldn't um and we, we that's something that we as the church and modern people should, should really take a close look at and say, well, why is that? If, if it was good enough for, for Jesus and, and the people of his time, it should be good enough for us. But in any case, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, let's read God's word together, and then we'll get right into the message. The Bible says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you so much for the the privilege to stand here and proclaim the truth of your word this morning. Pray that uh, you would allow me to rightly divide it uh, this morning and uh, pray, Lord, that uh, we would all see the truth of this text and uh, that we would leave this place today with a desire in our hearts to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the ancient world, when a king would travel from one city to the next or one town to the next. He was, he was typically accompanied by a group of workers, a, a group of men known as highway men. And so as, as the king was traveling from one road, from one town to the next, these highway men would go out before the king to make sure that he could travel along the road without any issues. So they would clear the road of any, any debris or any obstacles such as fallen trees or dead animals. They might fill any holes. That's right. There are people in this world that fill potholes. We, we could use some of these men right here in Kansas City, couldn't we? There are some ginormous potholes in this town. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but my truck has noticed that. So the, these highwaymen would go out and clear any obstacles. They would fill any holes. They would also level the, rud, the, the rough places. They, they would do all of this so that the king could travel unencumbered from one town or one city to the next and so that he could also enter each town and each city and each village with, with all the pomp and all the dignity befitting his status as a king. This historical detail probably very likely serves as the backdrop to what we read in verses 4 and 6. We're going to begin down there. The Bible says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. Whenever you see way in the Bible, you need to automatically think road. Okay, it's road way. In the Bible, the road is the way. So the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way or the road of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. We're going to fill the potholes. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. We're going to remove the obstacles. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. We're going to level the road. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. These verses are more or less a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 40, and I believe it's verses 3 and 5. And in these verses, the great prophet Isaiah is prophesying about a highwayman who would come to prepare the way or prepare the road for the one true king, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. Well, in our text this morning, Luke is telling us that John the Baptist is this chief highwayman of the one true king. His ministry 
was to call people to mend the roads of their hearts and their souls, to remove any and all obstacles and barriers so that Jesus Christ could enter unencumbered. In essence, his ministry was to call the people to roll out the red carpet and to receive Jesus Christ as their one true king. Now, with this in mind, I want you to notice now, you back up to verses 1 and 2, and I want you to notice the list of kings and rulers that are listed at the beginning of chapter 3. And I don't think it's an accident. I'm convinced that it's not an accident that in the context of John talking about the, the chief highwayman of the one true king, he first gives us at the very beginning a list of wannabe kings. And I say wannabe kings because they, they just all pale in comparison to the one true king. So he says, beginning in verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, on one hand, church, it is true. Luke is writing as an historian and this list of names that he gives us here, they, they do help us establish the, the ministries of Jesus and John within a verifiable historical setting, and that is important. You'll notice that he gives us a date, the 15th year of Tiberius. This actually places the events of this chapter around 26 or 27 AD. And if you do the math, I told you back before Christmas, there's good reason to believe that Jesus was born, John and Jesus were born around 4 or 5 BC, and that makes perfect sense with the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, because elsewhere we learn that Jesus is 30 years of age at the beginning of his ministry. And if you do the math from 4 BC to 26 AD, I think that's 30 years. I'm not a math whiz, but I, I, think, I think that's right. So on one hand, Luke is continuing to write as an historian. He gives us this information. We can establish the ministries of John and Jesus in a verifiable story, uh, historical setting. But Luke is also writing as a theologian, and we must not forget that. And there is a theological connection between John's ministry, Jesus, and this list of rulers here in verses 1 and 10. Tiberius is the Roman emperor. He is the supposed man-god, the man who became god and became ruler of the worldwide empire, the Roman empire, or so they thought. He is the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. Then there's uh, the, the tetrarchs, and those guys are puppet kings, and they're, they're serving in and around the area of Israel. Then there's Pilate. He's a military governor of Judea. He's a politician. He's responsible for keeping the peace and collecting taxes. And then there's the high priest. And, and don't just assume that the high priests are religious figures. They're not. The high priest in Jesus' day are political figures. And they have enormous political power and authority over the people of Israel. One way or another, church, each one of these men that are listed here have enormous political power, and each one are kings, quote-unquote, in their own right. Now, I, I just want to stop right here for just a moment, and I want to point out something that I, I think we need to be reminded of as we enter into 2024, uh, an election year. And this is probably going to be the most contentious political election in our history, and boy, oh boy, that's saying something. But, but we, we need to remember something as God's people today about kings and kingdoms. All right, you ready for it? Here it is. Earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, they come and go according to the sovereign will of God. Can you say amen to that? 
That's very biblical. You don't, if you don't believe me, go read Daniel 2.21, Romans 13, 1-7. Don't take my word for it. Go read it in Scripture. In fact, just this past week, the, the Speaker of the House, the United States House of Representatives, Mr. Johnson's his name. Isn't that, that his name? Did you know, I know some of you know, did you know that the Speaker of the House of Representatives is a faithful Southern Baptist churchman? Did you know that? He is. He's a member of a Southern Baptist church. And just this past week, Mr. Johnson made a bold statement that, that got a lot of people upset. He had the audacity to say before a watching world that Joe Biden was president by the will of God. And some people heard that and they go, what man are you talking about? And he says, well, go read your Bible in Daniel chapter 2, 21, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Earthly kings and earthly kingdoms come and go according to the sovereign will of God. But Jesus and his kingdom are eternal. Can somebody say amen to that? Jesus is on his throne ruling and reigning regardless of who occupies 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And you need to remember that in 2024. Some of you are already on pins and needles. You're already wringing your hands over the result of an election that's still nine or ten months away. And you're sitting there going, oh, heavens to Betsy, what in the world are we going to do if that evil old Mr. Joe Biden wins the election again? Let me tell you something. <laughs> Jesus Christ is on his throne and he's not wringing his hands over the election. He's not sitting there going, oh, heavens to Betsy, what in the world are we going to do if so-and-so wins the election? He's not concerned about it at all. It really makes no difference. Whoever it is, God's eternal plans and purposes in Christ, they will not be thwarted. They will be fulfilled regardless of who it is. Can you say amen to that? Thank you. Now, some of you sitting there going, are you telling me that I... if, if if this is all part of God's will, then does this mean that I shouldn't vote? No, by all means, please, go vote. Early and often if you have to. I strike that from the record. Just go vote. Vote your conscience. Vote whoever you want to vote for. It's between you and God. But here's what I am saying. Go vote and, and, and trust God with the results. Trust God with the results. Because Jesus Christ is on his throne, regardless of who's occupying 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So now we got that out of the way, all right? 15th year of Tiberius, all right? We're placing this in an historical setting. The ministry of John the Baptist begins, and it begins in the fashion of an Old Testament prophet. At the end of verse 2, we read, The word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You students of the Old Testament, you should recognize this formula because this is a common formula for introducing the ministry of an Old Testament prophet. We typically read that the Old Testament prophet is the son of so-and-so and that the word of God comes to him. Well, for example, Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Bere. Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So, what's going on here? Well, Luke is introducing John the Baptist in the mold of an Old Testament prophet. And of course, God had not spoken through a prophet in 400 years at the time of John. But he's about to speak again through John, who has the unique distinction of being the last of the Old Testament prophets 
and the first of the New Testament prophets. He's got a foot in both worlds. And I, I think this is one reason why Jesus says that he is the greatest ever born among women. And like the Old Testament prophets before him, he's going to call all people from kings and rulers all the way down to Joe the plumber and everyone in between. He's going to call all people to repent of their sin and to bow the knee before the one true king, Jesus Christ. We read in verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So the, the primary way by which John called the people to receive Jesus as king is through repentance. Now, what in the world is repentance? There's a lot of confusion about repentance in the world that we live in. As I mentioned a few moments ago, it, it rarely gets mentioned anymore from pulpits today. So what is repentance? Well, biblical repentance carries the idea of turning around. It's the idea of changing direction. And so you can think you're walking in this direction and, and God is behind you. And then all of a sudden you do an about face. You do a 180 and now you're, you're turning back and now you're going to walk in the direction of God. That's the biblical idea of repentance. It includes an acknowledgement of sin. Okay, I'm walking away from God, which means I'm walking in sin. I recognize that. So I'm going to turn around. I'm going to walk back towards God because God is the place. He's the one who can forgive me of my sin. That's the whole idea of repentance. There are people in our world today, you may be surprised to hear this. I don't know. Many pastors even who deny the necessity of repentance towards salvation. They say that forgiveness of sin is, is solely a matter of faith and grace and that repentance is not necessary to receive Christ and the salvation that he offers. Some even go so far as to say that, that repentance is an obstacle. This is what they say. It's an obstacle that prevents people from actually coming to faith in Christ. These people are known as free grace theologians you can go home and look up free grace theology if you want. It's a thing out there. Just don't you buy what they are selling, all right? There, there are many good reasons to reject that understanding of repentance and salvation. The ministry of John the Baptist is one. The ministry of Jesus is another one. And, and Jesus said at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke's version of the Great Commission Jesus is telling his disciples to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is what he says in Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm not going to go with some theologian sitting in an ivory tower somewhere in Fort Worth, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, because that's where those free grace theologians originated. I'm not going to go with those guys. I'm going to go with Jesus. And according to Jesus, the gospel message, the salvation message, it includes calling people to repent. I think the best way you can always put it is faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Think of a, a quarter, for instance. A quarter has two sides. On one side, there's the face of George Washington. It is George Washington on the quarter, right? And then on the other side, it's usually an eagle, maybe sometimes a, a buffalo or a bison or something. But it's got two sides, but it's, it's a quarter, right, on both sides. The coin of salvation has two sides. It has faith and it has repentance. They go together like love and marriage, a horse and carriage, okay? I mean, think about it. 
Genuine faith in Christ is going to include an acknowledgement of sin, doesn't it? I mean, we believe that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So if you're going to believe that, faith in Christ then includes an acknowledgement of sin, a desire to turn from that sin, and to live for God alone. So, hey, yeah, faith and repentance, two sides of the very same coin. This was true under John's ministry. I believe it's still true today. I believe that we must call people to believe and repent. Now, I may not always use the word repentance. You can call people to repent without actually using the word. The main thing is that they acknowledge the sin and that they do an about face and they turn back to God. That's the idea of repentance. Now, skip down to verse 7 and look at what John says. He says, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now, church, he, he compares his audience to a brood of vipers who were fleeing a forest fire. And whenever there's a forest fire, you know, all the critters in the forest, they get moving really fast because they don't want to be burned up in the flames. And he, he compares his audience who comes out to hear his message. He compares them to a brood of vipers. Don't, miss, don't, don't look over what a brood of vipers is. Don't, don't look over that statement, that phrase. You know what a brood of vipers is? A brood of vipers is a family of baby snakes. That's, that's what a brood is. It's a family of baby something. In this case, baby snakes. He's, he's calling his audience children of, of snakes. This is not the way to typically win friends and influence people, is it? You don't hear that preached very often in many of our pulpits today, do you? He's calling them children of snakes. I think he's calling them children of a snake. Put your thinking caps on. There is a snake in the Bible, isn't there? And a pretty big one. Yeah, his name is Satan. He's calling these people children of the devil. Don't miss it. That's exactly what he's doing. Now, why? Why would he call them children of the devil? Well, he's trying to jar them awake because as we see next, they assume that they have a father and it's not Satan in their, from their perspective. He says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he's, he's speaking to an audience, a Jewish audience, who just automatically assumed that they were free of God's wrath to come based totally on their ancestry. Well, we're the children of Abraham. We're good to go. <laughs> we, we've got Abraham. We've got the covenant. We've got all this and we've got all that. We've got our DNA and our ancestry. We have no need to repent. We have no need to submit to Christ as our king. We have Abraham as our father. We have no reason to flee the wrath to come. And John looks at them and he says, you think that you're children of Abraham, but you're not. You're really children of the devil. And by the way, church, Jesus said the very same thing to another audience, another Jewish audience. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he looks at them and says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. There's something else that doesn't get put on billboards today across this great country of ours, is it? I think this is why, church, I think this is why the Apostle Paul writes for us in Galatians chapter 3. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. In other words, the true descendants of Abraham, they are spiritual, and they're not physical. 
The physical descendants of Abraham, they can become the spiritual descendants of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. But the true descendants of Abraham are spiritual. They recognize that they are born into this world in sin, in rebellion against God, that, they are all, that we are all born into this world as a brood of vipers. And, and I know that's not how we like to think of ourselves, uh, us modern people, I, I get that. But, but this is how the Bible describes the human condition. In fact, if you go read the book of, of Colossians, you'll see over there, I don't have the exact address, the Apostle Paul makes the point that, that Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in him, that he transfers us from the domain and the dominion of Satan into the domain and the dominion of Christ's kingdom. And so we, we are all born into this world in some sense in sin and rebellion against God as a brood of vipers with the devil as our father. Now, again, I know this is not how we like to think of ourselves. In fact, I, I think many Americans today like to think of themselves as the same way that John's audience and Jesus' audience thought of themselves. A lot of Americans today will say, well, I was born in a Christian country. Doesn't that make me a Christian? I had Christian parents. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Doesn't that make me free from the wrath of God? I've been to church my whole life. Doesn't that make me free from the wrath of God? I'm all right, preacher. I'm just a good old boy. I'm like Bo and Luke do. I never meant no harm. Never intended to harm nobody. No, I'm just a good old boy. All right. I'm all right. Leave me alone, preacher. I, I got my get out of jail free card. I'm good to go. A lot of people in our culture today are just like that. Those things are all well and good, but they do not save you from the wrath of God. Salvation is never a matter of race. It's never a matter of ancestry. It's not according to where you were born. It's not a matter of going to church and occupying a pew for 50 years. That doesn't save you. That is a fruit of your salvation. Salvation from the wrath to come requires personal saving faith Amen. in Jesus Christ. Salvation is received by a personal and conscious decision to turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, believing in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, acknowledging in some sense, yes, I'm a sinner. I've been born into this world in a brood of vipers, and the devil is my, my father. Yeah, that, that's what salvation in Jesus Christ includes. It, it's available to all people, all people, regardless of skin color, national origin, socioeconomic status, it's available to all people regardless of how big your sin may be. This is another problem in our world today. There was a time, again, when the pendulum was over here and, and preachers emphasized sin so much that people left church and they didn't want to hear anything more about sin. Well, today the pendulum's on the other side. And, and nowadays no one even ever mentions sin at all. Or if they do, well, all sin's kind of all right in the eyes of God. You know, you can just do whatever you want to do. That's balarkey. And I just made that word up. It's malarkey. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell itself. But another lie straight from the pit of hell is that your sin is too big and that God can never possibly forgive you. That's not true either. God stands willing to forgive all sin and all unrighteousness. And the truth is there's no difference in sin. All sin is sin and egregious and evil in the eyes of a holy and a righteous God. That's the bad news. The good news is our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. And he extends the offer of forgiveness to all who are willing to acknowledge their sin, turn to him in faith through Jesus Christ. Ain't the gospel great? Amen. 
I'm so glad you could say amen to that. He goes on in verse 9. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I shouldn't have to stand up here and convince you that this is a picture of eternal judgment. So I'm not going to. You're just going to have to take my word for it. The important note here is that, again, this is a warning that's directed to people like us, religious people, people who just assume that they are in. John says, don't assume that you're saved because you're children of Abraham. You need to be children of God. And if you are children of God, then you will bear godly fruit. Now, look at what he says in verse 10, or what the Bible says. Luke says, when he says this, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They're picking up what John is putting down. They're like, oh, okay. Not only can we not rely on Abraham as our father, but, but you know, God needs to be our father. But also, once we come to faith and the one true king, then we also need to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so they ask him, what then shall we do? What does fruit in keeping with repentance look like? Now, church, because I love you, I'm going to tell you this is a great question that we should ask of ourselves and of our Lord and Savior every single day. Like, write this down right here. And at the beginning of every day, or at some point in the day, make it a point to ask God, to ask Jesus, Jesus, what can I do today? to bear fruit in keeping with my repentance. This is the, the unexamined life is a life that's not worth living, and that is true of the Christian life. Lord, what can I do today? How can I bear fruit in keeping with repentance? This is what the crowds ask John. Now, John is going to give them an answer, and the answer is germane to their specific circumstance, but there is an application for all of God's people for all time as well. You'll see in verse 11, and he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Hey, let me just stop right here and just say this, church. Your attitude towards the poor and the disadvantaged, it reveals a whole lot about the depth and the sincerity of your faith. Here, here, here's a, a test for you, okay? And I'm serious when I say this. What is the first thought that runs through your mind when you're out there driving through town and you see that guy on the street corner with, with a sign and he's asking for money. Christian, what's the first thought that runs through your mind? Is it a God-honoring, Christ-honoring thought? Or is it something less than that? Think about that and think about that the next time you see that person out there on the street corner. Because your attitude towards the poor and disadvantaged reveals a lot about the sincerity of your faith. It reveals a lot about whether or not you've truly received grace and forgiveness yourself. He goes on to say, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax collectors in the Roman Empire, they were allowed to collect more than the law required, and they were allowed to, to pocket the difference for themselves. And so because of this, they were known to strong-arm people to make them pay more than they actually were required by law to pay. And you thought you hated the IRS. Yeah, these guys were really, really, really bad. So John called them to repent of their greed and extortion. Verse 14, soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content 
with your wages. Likewise, Roman soldiers were free to extort money to line their pockets. If you'll notice, church, all three groups that are mentioned here, they all have something in common, don't they? The people, the tax collectors, and the soldiers, they were all misusing money and material possessions. So at the very least, church, this is what we can say based on this text. What we do with our money and what we do with our possessions, how we earn our money, is a good indicator of the authenticity of our faith. If we hoard our money and our possessions for ourselves, that's a problem in the economy of God. If we refuse to be generous to those in need, that's a problem in the eyes of God. If we earn our money unethically and at the expense of others, that is also a problem in the eyes of God. I, I just want you to see this, church. John's message here very clearly anticipates the, the coming teachings of Jesus and specifically the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? Jesus is going to come along and teach that. And what John is teaching here anticipates that teaching. And so think about it, right? If, if you were poor and needy, it, you, you would want people to be generous towards you, right? You, you wouldn't want people to look down their noses at you and to make snide remarks about you. Oh, go get a job, bum. That's not how you would want to be treated. So Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you were poor and disadvantaged, you would not want people to take advantage of you and to extort you. And so he says, hey, don't do that others love your neighbor as yourself we're going to see these teachings more and more as we journey through the gospel of luke then we see in verse 15 as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning john whether he might be the christ they're wondering is he the christ is he the one true king verse 16 john answered i baptize you with water but he who is mightier than i is coming I'm just the highway man. That's it. I'm just here to prepare the road. That's all I'm doing. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to, and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Another picture of judgment, the winnowing fork it was used to separate grain and the wheat harvest. They bring the wheat in. They pick up the, the winnowing fork and they throw it in the air. And the chaff, which is the useless part of the grain, it's lighter than the good stuff. And it tends to blow away. And after the harvest, they would rake up all of the useless chaff. It's useless. And they would put it in piles and they would burn it. And so John says that Christ will come and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, never-ending fire. Think of it like this. In hell, there are no firefighters running around trying to put out the flames. The fires go on forever and ever and ever. They are unquenchable. And then he says, right after that remark in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Good news Chopping down trees, throwing them in the fire, unquenchable fire, chaff. How in the world is that good news? 
Well, you know, church, you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. You can't have good news if at first you don't have bad news. Am I right? Am I right? So the bad news is we're all born in this world as children of Satan, destined to the eternal fires of eternity. The good news is there's a way to flee the wrath that is to come, and that is through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Then we read in verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. You know what I like about John? John was not afraid to call out the sins of the king of his time. He called him out. He said, oh yeah, this guy's living in adultery, and he's doing many other things. And well, Herod didn't like it, so he locked him up, threw away the keys, and eventually cut off his head. And just so you know, I'm not afraid to call out the sin of the President of the United States either. I told you a couple of weeks ago, not all prophets are pastors, but all pastors better be prophets. And, and church, we should not turn a blind eye to sin just for political expediency. That is not honoring to Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, who died for our sins. God does not look past sin for political expediency. God's people should not either. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Remember last week, 12-year-old Jesus in the temple God's house said, God is my father. Well, now at the conclusion of this text, guess what? God himself confirms the witness and the testimony of Jesus. He is, in fact, the divine and the unique son of God. I'm going to close with this, church. I mentioned this last week. Many people in our culture, they respect Jesus Many regard him as a, a religious teacher of great significance, a, a moral teacher, a great philosopher. Some people go so far as to acknowledge Jesus as a great prophet. For many people in the world in which we live, if there is a religious hall of fame, think about the football hall of fame, if there's a religious hall of fame, Jesus is enshrined in it for a lot of people alongside other religious figures like Buddha and Muhammad and the Dalai Lama and many others. But let us be perfectly clear. The biblical portrait shows that Jesus is not one among many others. As one commentator said it, the hall of religious fame into which Jesus is placed has only one portrait in it, and that is his portrait. We need to remember that. There have been other great teachers, other prophets, other kings, but there is only one who has combined all of those into the role of the divine and the unique Son of God. This text this morning is calling us to receive him as such. If you were here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ by faith and repentance, this text is calling you to do that to bow your knee in submission to Jesus Christ as the one true king. Don't leave this place today without making that decision. You've been warned. You've heard the gospel. You have no excuse. 
The wrath of God abides on all people who have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's biblical. I don't enjoy saying that. I say that as a prophet of God. I, I encourage you to turn to faith in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of your sin. For the rest of us, those of us who have received Christ by faith, this text is asking us to examine ourselves and to look into our lives and ask, am I bearing fruit in keeping with my repentance and faith? Do I love much because I understand that I have been forgiven much? Am I generous with my, my time, my talents, my money, and my possessions for the benefit of others? Do I treat others as I would want them to treat me? Am I living according to the golden rule? Am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? If you are someone who walked into this place today and said, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a question that this text is demanding that each of us ask of ourselves. So take this time, this moment, heads bowed, eyes closed, as we enter into a time of response and invitation to search your heart in this moment, church, and ask God to give you the strength and the ability and the power within his love and his grace To be someone who, who does bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Ask him to show you areas where maybe you should love more, be less judgmental. Ask him to show you, and he will. And then for others out there who maybe never trusted in Christ, for you, search your heart. And ask, you, ask yourself in this moment, do I truly have forgiveness? Have I truly been forgiven of my sin? And have I sought salvation and forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ? Father, I thank you and I praise you for all that you are and all that you've done. I thank you that you have given me forgiveness. And I, I thank you for the grace that I've received in my life, and I pray that, that, that I would be one who, who loves much in response to the fact that an acknowledgement that I have been forgiven much. Pray that I would set the example for the people that I lead. Thank you, Lord, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you, church, to stand. We're going to sing one more song. It is a time of invitation. It is a time to respond. So I just gave you the, the invitation, and so... The Lord is prompting you to respond. I would encourage you to come forward, whatever it is that's on your heart this morning as we sing this last song.